Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Speaking of Luke, my son Luke celebrated a birthday the other day on Friday. And he had his day mapped out. He wanted, he said, here's what I want for breakfast. Here's what I want to do for lunch. And he had it all the way through to the evening. And so we said, yes, sir, Mr. Lucas. Uh, But we had a fun day. We actually, I I know my son is a future prophet and preacher. I know this. And I'll tell you why. He's a Mr. Demand. But uh, we found ourselves at Chuck E. Cheese. Go figure. An eight-year-old wants to go to Chuck E. Cheese. Uh And we found ourselves at Chuck E. Cheese. But I'm going to tell you, I saw something at Chuck E. Cheese I wish I didn't see. Two teenagers in love. Yes. They were, no, there's no awe to it. Oh, more like, ah. And they had positioned themselves in a hidden spot behind where the kids climb up. And uh, I noticed, and I'm like, whoa, a little taken back. And so I go over there to see what my kids are doing, because I knew they were climbing in the thing. And I get over there, and there is Luke right against the net. Right, and there they are. And he's just, he's fussing at them. Y'all need to stop that. You need to stop that. Good for Luke. So on our way out, we let the managers know. <laughs> That's what we try to protect our kids from. We don't bring them to Chuck E. Cheese to see that. I'm just saying. But anyways, we got another one uh, this week. So, uh, Miss Karis, I guess we'll have a Princess Day. Uh, break out my pink shirt. But anyway, <laughs> lots of fun. Um, we have been going through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we now find ourselves on the Sermon on the Plain. And uh, we reference it as such uh, because there is discussion as to, is this the same message as the Sermon on the Mount? And good scholars disagree as to, is this the same message? Is it a different message? And and at the end of the day, I'm not one who's going to get all hung up on that because there's really no reason to get hung up on that because here's what I do know. Jesus preached the gospel. He preached the message of the kingdom. As he went from city to city, he proclaimed, in essence, the same truth. And so, whether or not it's the same message, and Luke just, for his theological perspective and and how God wanted him to pin this down, it didn't fit with his, uh, um, his representation of the gospel as such that God did not want him to include certain things, that doesn't bother me. Um... Uh, whether it's two separate accounts altogether, again, not a big deal to me. Because we know this, the truth that's being proclaimed in both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain is, I believe, one of salvation. It's one of hope in Christ. It's one that um, uh, if we are going to be expected to live out such a practice in our life, we've got to know Him. And uh, He came that He might be known. He came that... Uh, he might save that which is lost. And so the message, again, whether you hold to it as being the same or different, uh, you can do your homework on it. Uh, again, I, I'm not, I'm not going to push that issue um, 
because to me it's not an issue to, to push. Uh, with that said, today we're going to continue as we look at what's being uh, shared here in the Sermon on the Plain. And we find ourselves today in verses 27 of Luke 6. Luke 6, verse 27. You remember he started out uh, Christ proclaiming uh, the blessings. Blessed is the uh, man, blessed is the man, blessed is the man, blessed is the man. And then he gives four woes. Woe, 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 woe. And he, he goes through these different things and lays out a contrast. We talked about that last time. The contrast. But notice where we begin today in Luke 6, verse 27. I don't know how far we'll get today, but we'll just go as far as we can until we find a good stopping point. Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies. Do good. And lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Father, thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your grace. And... Um, Lord, I pray this morning as we look into your word, I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead me and, and Lord, that you would help us to have ears to hear. And I pray, Lord, that you would teach us. Lord, I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit. Give me uh, your guidance in proclaiming these truths. And Lord, help us to take what we hear today and implement it. And we'll give you the glory. For we ask it in the name that's above every name. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You notice in verse 27 of this text, Jesus starts with this phrase, But I say to you who hear. Now I'll stop for a moment. Because according to Scripture, there are those that are here this morning with us, there are those listening via the radio who do not hear. Oh, you might be present. They might even be tuned into the station. But they don't truly hear the message of God. They don't hear what Christ is saying in these words. And we know this is the case because the Apostle Paul 
has also spoken to this uh, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says, but the natural man, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them. Because they are spiritually discerned. For 25 years of my life, I remember, I read my Bible lots of times. And I remember oftentimes closing it and thinking, I don't get it. These and thou's and this and that's and, you know, so-and-so begot and so-and-so begot. And I just, you know, I was just like, I don't get it. You know, and occasionally I would pick up on maybe something in Proverbs or, you know. But I didn't really get it until I got it. And somebody said, the light's not on until the light's on. (laughs) You're in the dark until the light's on, right? But when the light's on, you can see. And there's a lot of people who were in in Jesus' crowd the day that He came down off the mountain. He had been spending time with the Father in prayer. You remember the context. He comes down, He selects the twelve apostles... And now he heals and he casts out some demons and there's all of this massive group of people from all around the land who've amassed to hear him teach. And yet still in the midst, we know there's Pharisees and there's scribes and there's all these other folks that are gathered there and many of them don't really hear what he has to say. It's foolishness to them. And let's be honest, there are some listening today that this message of Christ... Coming, dying on a cross for my sins, being placed in a tomb and three days later rising from the dead, victorious over death, and He offers salvation to whosoever will let them come. That's foolishness to a lot of people. Makes no sense to them. And yet I also find though there are the religious that sort of are like the rich young ruler and say, yeah, yeah, I've done that. Yeah, yeah, I've done that. Yeah, yeah, I've done that. And they don't really hear what God is calling them to do. They don't really hear what it means to be a follower of Christ. Jesus started this Sermon on the Plain, Sermon on the Mount, however you want to refer to it. He started it with, blessed are the poor, poor in spirit. Because, see, until you and me come to a place of brokenness, till you and me come to a place where we genuinely see our need for a Savior, we won't hear it. We won't get it. We won't understand it. I, I, I tried. I really did. I'm just not as computer savvy as I once thought I was. But I, I thought I would have a little, you know, PowerPoint presentation up here of, of this diagram. And uh, I don't, so I'm going to try and walk around and show you a little piece of paper. <laughs> may take me a while. Um, but but I've, I've been learning some, some good stuff, uh, praise God, in my counseling course. Um, and y'all pray for us next week. I'm supposed to go and finish a, a major part of my practicum in Tennessee uh, where I'll get some specific direct training from uh, Dr. Charles Solomon, who's author of uh, the book Handbook to Happiness, a very good book if you uh, 
want to get that, it's a, I recommend it. But basically, um, one of the things he helps in, in people to identify is the basic Christian life. And he uses diagrams and he uses models. And I want to I kind of show you this one. Um, it, it, you see this circle, and I'll walk around and kind of show it, but it's the basic Christian life. You may even want to draw your own little diagram. It's not too hard. Uh, draw a circle and put three pies in it. But you see that? That's the basic Christian life. But it's also just the basic life of man in this sense. Man is made up of soul, spirit, and body. Every man is made up of soul, spirit, and body. Scriptures tell us that. Hebrews tells us that. Um, We also know that the spirit of man is dead. When we were created, and Adam created in the image of God, man had perfect communion with God. Right? What happened when Adam and Eve disobeyed God's command? They fell. They fell into sin. Death entered into mankind. Did Adam die physically? No. He died in that moment spiritually. The communion that was once there was changed. Every one of us that's since been born into this world, we are born, in in essence, in sin. We are spiritually dead. Don't take my word for it. Read Ephesians chapter 2. For you were dead in your trespasses and sin. So here's the problem we got. Man who's triune in its being, hmm, interesting, soul, body, and spirit, the spirit of man is dead. So you know what happens in life? Me and you have issues. You say, well, you you may have issues. I don't have issues. Well, that's your issue. (laughs) We all have issues, right? We all have issues. Here's the problem. Even today, we as Christians, we seek for help in all the wrong places. I don't know about you, but the one who created and designed me probably understands me better than anyone. You and I, too often times, seek for help in the wrong places. And look, I don't fault the world in their way of doing things because they're doing what the natural man does. They're doing their best. And so what happens is you and I, we go to get help, and what they do is treat the symptoms. Do you ever cure something? Cure something by just treating the symptoms? No. So understanding this concept, if you and I have issues... I don't know about you, I want the cure. And so what ends up happening too oftentimes, like I say in our life, we go, and by the way, if you're wondering, I'll give you a little bit, little bit more here you can write and fill in your circle. The soul of man is the mind, the will, and the emotions. The soul of man, known as the psyche, is the mind, the will, and the emotions. This is why when you go to get help, a lot of times you'll go to the psychologist or the psychiatrist. 
because they help deal with the psyche. This is the psychological aspect. This is how we relate to others through the soul of man, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Now, the spirit, as we said, it relates to God. The intuition, the conscience, the communion. But remember, that's dead. That's dead. And every man that's born into this world, that part is dead. Now, the body, that's pretty simple. That's how what relates to the environment. This is, you know, if I can get up and walk, I'm good. If I can't, I can't. The physiological. The physiological. Too often times, you and I, we go to get help and we either deal with the physiological or we deal with the psychological. But here's the problem. You're only treating part of the problems. Me and you need the cure. And if you're dead spiritually, and I'm dead spiritually, until that spirit is made alive, we're just treating the symptoms. And Jesus starts off His Sermon on the Mount because you've got to get the first thing right. Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you and I do not come to a place of understanding of who God is, who Christ is, why He came, why He gave His life, He did not just come to deliver us from the penalty of sin. Yes, that's what He did. He justified us at the cross. That's justification. We are made right in the sight of God in the moment that you and I repent of our sins and by faith receive Christ's work on Calvary on our behalf. When we put our faith and hope in Christ alone, we receive Christ by faith, the Spirit of God quickens me. I'm made alive in spirit. I'm whole again, if you will. I actually now have the opportunity to respond other than just the natural way. I can actually now choose to respond in a spiritual way. But what happens to you and me is we don't. We continue to feed the flesh and we continue to do things the way we used to do things and we just respond in our normal psychological way or physiological way and we do it in our own strength. You will not be able to live out the Sermon on the Mount apart from being born again. If the spirit of you is dead, you can try all day long to be the Sermon on the Mount type kind of person, but you're doing it in your flesh. We must be born again. Our spirit must be made alive. That's the way we're able to carry out what Jesus is going to teach us here in this sermon on the plane. You see, the problem is, too often times, we don't get this. We don't understand this. The spirit is to lead the soul. The Spirit is to lead the soul. If I am in right relationship with God, then guess what begins to change? My mind, my will, and my emotions. The Spirit leads the soul. And guess what? When that's right, and this begins to get right, this also leads now my body. You see how it's all interwoven. We We as individuals... Our designer designed us that we might have communion with Him. 
And when Adam sinned, that part was severed. And that's why you and I look for self-worth in our spouse. Women are looking for that security. Men are looking for competence. Men are looking for um, significance in their jobs, in what they do. And so you and I, in our natural state, we grasp at everything else, trying to find value, trying to find something that's self-worth, and therefore self is at the center of life. I didn't talk about that in that diagram, but if you notice in the very center of that diagram, there's an S. That's self. Self is on the throne of your life. And who needs to be on on the center of your life is Christ. Because when Christ is on the throne of our life, I can have communion with Him and I can understand now the light is on and I can begin to have Him transform and renew my mind. So that now I can have the actual opportunity to live by faith, not by sight. I can actually now yield to the Spirit of God who's at work in my life, trying to change me, trying to transform me from the inside out, not externally in. And that's where we miss it too oftentimes, even in our churches. And so that's why when you hear somebody preaching at you or teaching at you, and you just think, maybe we ain't getting it from within. I hope we'll have ears to hear. So... Let's continue on. Let's actually get back into some things here. But I hope you're okay with me sharing some things I'm learning. I, I like learning, and, I, I, and I'm excited about that, and I just hope it helps. I know it helps me. <laughs> All right. So here's what happens. Understanding that, understanding that the natural man doesn't get it, that the spiritual man only can get it, Jesus now tells these folks... Love your enemies. It's not an option. It's command. Love your enemies. In Jesus' day, during this time, now put yourself in this scene. We've already talked about how this is radical stuff Jesus is teaching. Put yourself there. Massive amounts of people. And Jesus gets up there and says, blessed are the poor. Remember we talked about this? The religious were rich. The common understanding was that if you were blessed by God, you were rich. You had things all together in your life. Now Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor. That doesn't make sense to them. Now he says this, love your enemies. Whoa, wait a minute, Jesus, time out. It's a sin to love your enemies. That's what they thought. This is what the Pharisees taught. This is what the religious people taught. They understood that it was a sin to love your enemies. And Jesus is saying love your enemies. Here again, He is right in the face of the religious establishment with these teachings. This is radical stuff. Listen to what John MacArthur says in regards to this concept. So Jesus steps in front of the crowd. Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Plain. Pharisees, scribes, everyone's there listening. He's got priests, rabbis, local synagogue rulers, and the populace. And he says, love your enemies. That to the Jews is a statement that is immoral. 
It is ungodly to say that. It's not right. That's offensive to them because they tied their spiritual virtue to their hatred. Here's what the Essenes say. You remember the Essenes? Qumran, Dead Sea Scrolls. Listen to this segment. The the Essenes, another religious sect, another religious group. And by the way, these were the most, um, how would we say, separatist of the day. These were the Amish of the day. Anyway, no offense to any Amish listening. Here's a quote from some of their literature. Listen to this direct quote from their teaching. Love all that God has chosen and hate all He has rejected. They also wrote, Love all the sons of light and hate all the sons of darkness. That was prescribed in their ethical, moral, religious code. Hate sons of darkness. Unbelievers. In fact, they went so far as to curse all non-Essenes, which means hate the Pharisees, hate the Sadducees, hate the Zealots, hate everybody who is a non-Essene. Hate them all. That's what they would have taught. The Pharisees weren't much better. This is I'm quoting from one of the maxims of the Pharisees. Quote, If a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea... Let him by no means lift out of there, for it is written, Thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but this man is not thy neighbor. Why? Because he's a Gentile. Let him drown. It's a sin to lift him out of the water. Don't rescue a Gentile. Now, this has become a point of their virtue. In fact, the Romans... You can find in Roman writings, the Romans actually accused the Jews of hating the human race. Nice reputation. Now, we would like to think that Christians are known by their love. In the ancient world, Jews were known by their hate. And it's not unlike that in our contemporary uh, Times today, Middle Eastern, other parts and places in the Islamic world, right? Same type practices they carry out. Hate the infidel, right? Destroy them at all costs. I mean, so we can kind of understand this. They think they're doing God a favor when they do these things. They think they're in right. I wonder if we sometimes flirt with that line ourselves. In taking our stands, are we, and I'm all for taking stands, but we've got to be real careful that we're not sending out a message that says, I hate you. There's a difference of, I hate what you are doing, but that should never be lost in translation to, I love you. As a being. And so Jesus stands up there and he begins to say to them, Love your enemies. 
I could just hear the crowd mumbling amongst themselves. Can't you? What do you say? Some of them probably beginning to shout. Love your enemies. Now, how are we going to do that? How are we going to love our enemies? Well, yeah, I'm reminded of John 15, 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Remember Jesus is saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. See, the natural man can't do this. Oh, you might can do some outwardly deeds, but you cannot agape love someone. You can't love someone with the divine love who's your enemy, apart from the Spirit of God indwelling within you. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Jesus says, here's one of the first ones. He says, do good. You want to know how to love your enemies? Here's how we love our enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. In their day, one of the big haters, the Romans, Jesus is teaching them to do good to those who hate you. Do good to those Romans? You know, the story is told of an Armenian nurse who had been held captive along with her brother by the Turks. Her brother was slain by a Turkish, Turkish soldier before her eyes. Somehow she escaped and later became a nurse in a military hospital. One day she was stunned to find that the same man who had killed her brother had been captured and brought wounded to the hospital where she worked. Some of you are nurses. Some of you are in the health profession. Some of you are uh, scribing to be. What do you do? Here coming in on the bed into the room that you're supposed to tend and care to them, this is the very one who right in your face, right before your eyes, killed your brother. Something within her cried out vengeance. A stronger, small, still voice called to her, to love. She nursed the man back to health. Finally, the recuperating soldier asked her, Why didn't you let me die? Her answer was, I am a follower of him who said, Love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. Impressed with her answer, the young soldier replied, I never heard such words before. Tell me more. I want this kind of religion. You see, Jesus' teaching here about this is illustrated in that story. The idea here is that we love in such a way that it's evangelistic. The man can't help but see the good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the kind of love that Jesus is teaching throughout here. This is what He wants from us. Notice the next thing He says, Bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. Now this word bless, this is a Greek word, and it's pronounced eulogeio. It's to speak well of. 
eulogeo. It's to speak well of. So the idea here of blessing those who curse you, speak well of them. Speak well of them. You know, it's kind of like what mom used to say. If you can't say nothing nice, don't say nothing at all. Anybody ever? I was taught that. (laughs) Your grandma said that. Okay, that was good advice, Michelle, good advice. Speak well of those. This means to love others, love our enemies, by the way we talk about them. Guys, that's hard, ain't it? I mean, let's just be real for a second. That's hard. It's because we do things in the flesh. It's because instead of yielding to the Spirit who's desiring for us to do this very thing, it's natural for us to just throw out a few jokes about the president. Oh, did I say that out loud? Or to make comments against that nasty neighbor who keeps getting on your number one nerve. Can I confess something? This is a hard message. I'm just being real with you. As I'm going through this and preparing this, I can't tell you how many times I had to hang my head and say, God, forgive me. I'm, I, am, I am so in the flesh too many times. Too many times. Too often. The natural man. You see, when we got saved and, 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 and Christ took up residence within us, we still do things the way we used to do. We handle problems and situations the way our nature handles problems and situations. But we're a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are becoming new. And I'm thankful that the Spirit of God convicts us and gives me those moments to say, Lord, forgive me. Bless those. Why would God want you to bless someone who's treating you so badly? You think about I mean, you just don't know what this... You don't know what this person's done to me, Pastor. I've heard that kind of stuff before in counseling. You just don't know. You have, and you're right, I don't know. But we don't know what it means to suffer upon a cross at Calvary, taking upon the weight of the world and all the sin upon oneself to the point of the crucifixion and death. But Christ does. And Christ, for the joy set before Him, endured the suffering of the cross. And you know what? He can empathize and sympathize with your pain and your suffering. Why would God want you to bless someone who's treating you so so badly? Blessing others is a powerful protection to keep you from becoming bitter, hateful, and bent on revenge. You want to know why you should bless that person that you can't stand? 
because it guards against that bitterness that's going to grab your heart and keep you prison there for the rest of your life. And that's where some of you are today. You're still in that prison. The Bible refers to this as a stronghold. When I do counseling, a lot of times I'll draw a little circle and I'll have you put all the pieces of the pie that make up your life. And right in the center, I'll put a circle. And in that circle, I'll color it in nice and dark and black. Because in the center of your life, there's a stronghold. Something that grabbed a hold of you in your life and you've never let it go. You may have said you've let it go, but everything within you holds back to that. And it affects every aspect of your life. And Christ is trying to teach His followers, those who get it, those whose light's on, and for those of you that are here that your light is on, get it, please, hear what I'm saying. Don't hold on to that bitterness. Bitterness springs up and defiles many. And I always liken it to being in a prison. It's like you're in a prison cell, yet the door's unlocked because you're a believer in Christ. Why do you stay there? The door's open. You're free to go. You've been set free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. But you see, we choose to naturally, in the soul of man, the psyche of man, in my mind, in my will, in my emotions, I stay there because I'm not letting the Spirit lead me. And if I let the Spirit lead me, I begin to have my mind renewed. I begin to understand who I am in Christ. Bless those who curse you. Notice the next thing, verse 28, the second part of verse 28. He says, pray for those who spitefully use you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. This is this word spitefully, or some of yours may say despite, uh, those who despitefully use you. It's the Greek word apereozo. It's, it means to accuse falsely. To accuse falsely. Pray for those who accuse you falsely. Ever been falsely accused? Hurts, doesn't it? You know, it's the same word that's used in 1 Peter 3.16. 1 Peter 3.16 says this, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. Christ knows about being falsely accused. They brought in those uh, during His trial to purposefully lie. And yet it says He didn't open His mouth in response to them. Wow. Can you imagine... Someone is running you down and running your name. You're just slandering and making you mud. And you don't say a word. Natural man won't let you do that, will he? But the spiritual man will. Because I understand I can commit to him who judges righteously. And one day it will all be reckoned. It will all come out. And you know what? There's something about knowing in here that does give you an an, an internal peace. If you've ever been wrongly accused and you know within your being this is not true, and God, you know this is not true, and therefore I'm just going to trust you in it. I'm going to trust you through it. Doesn't make it 
easy to endure and go through. I'm not saying it does. But there is something that's peaceful about it. Because you trust that God knows and He will handle it according to His will. You know, I remember what this was like. I'm going to give you a true story. This happened to me while I was in Bible college. I struggled in Greek, as you can tell by my pronunciations. <laughs> I really struggled. Four semesters of it. And I remember Greek 1, I think I made like a, a C. Greek 2, I made like a D. Greek 3, I made like a D. And I remember Greek 3, my professor coming to me and saying, Jeremy, I have shown you grace for two semesters. He said, but I cannot let you go into Greek 4. He said, you just don't have it. And you've got to understand, at the college I was at, at Piedmont, that Greek 4 class was only offered once a year. So if I didn't get that class, I would have to wait an entire year before I'd be able to graduate. And I remember pleading, begging that professor after class one day, please, I'll, I'll do anything. I'll get a tutor. I'll work extra hard. I'm telling you, I've got to have this class. I've got to have it. And he said, against my better judgment, I'm going to okay you to be in the class. Now, I had put myself out there. So Greek 4 rolls around, and I got a tutor. It was a guy in my class, and I would work security at night. So I would, I feel your pain, Barnett. I worked security from about 11, well, sometimes it just depends. I could go in from 7 in the evening when it started to get dark, and I may work a couple of shifts. Sometimes I remember doing a 7 to 7. Uh, but a lot of times it was 11 o'clock to 7 in the morning. And that's when I'd have to do my homework. Good security guard, huh? He's out there doing his homework. Everything's safe. I'm sure it's all right. They were fine with it. I wasn't, you know, they, they told us we could do that. But I would have this guy, and I, and I appreciate him. He would take time away from his family and drive out there at 11 o'clock at night, and he began to teach me a cadence, a march. And I literally would march from the campus of Piedmont down to Salem. If any of you guys have ever been to Salem College or down to Old Salem, and I'd mark all, march all the way down to the end of Old Salem and march back uh, with my endings. Luoso, Luoso, Luoso. I mean, I'd go through all these endings, you know, of the words. And I'd have to do that. And he would be right there beside me. Come on, come on. Yeah, that's it. Oh, oh miss, you mess it. Go back, back it up. Yeah. And he'd do that. Didn't help me. <laughs> I'd say it didn't help me. I still didn't get it. The light didn't come on. So I fired him. No, I'm just kidding. He uh, actually, he, he ended up, I think, taking a church. He had to do something else, whatever. I don't know, but he was out of the picture. So I went to my good buddy, Mel, Dr. Mel Winstead. And I knew Mel was top of the class. I said, Mel, man, I need you to help me, buddy. I, 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 I got to pass this. I got I to do this. So Mel began to meet me out at the security booth, and he began to help me, and he began to work with me. And one night, I'll never forget it, I'm sitting out there, and I'm looking at the page, and it was like, it's like the light came on. I got it. I understand how this works with this. I understand it. It was like it just come together, like it cleared up on the page for some reason. 
And I remember I actually began to do my assignments. And he, Mel was like, you know, checking them. And he was like, yeah, that's right. You're right. You're right. And I was like, man, this is good stuff. I went into class. And I want to say it was like our midterm or our final. It was a big exam. And I studied my tail off for it. I went in there. I took that exam. And when he began to announce the next week the, the grades to the class, he said, the only A in the class on this exam was Jeremy Varner. That's what I said. I was amen, man, I was all excited. But you know what happened? A couple of classmates began to look and talk. And one of them, it ate at him so bad, he went to the professor and said, Professor, I think Jeremy may have cheated. And the reason was because, and look, I didn't fault the man in the sense that if I saw a guy who made C's and D's and cut up in class and, you know, did I say that one? I didn't. Kids, you don't do that at home, all right? But I just, I got it. I understood it. And I got, I really started enjoying it. But he went to this professor and he mentioned this to him. And the professor, he knew I'd been working with mail. I wish he would have come to me, but he didn't. He went to Mayo. He said, Mayo, is it possible that Jeremy may have cheated? Mayo said, he's got this. He's got this. There's no way. And actually, when he came to me, the professor did come to me and told me that he had that conversation and told me that somebody had come. And, you know, I wanted to say so much, but I didn't. Because God gave me a peace. I knew. I knew. And look, that was my own fault. I'd been the bonehead for three semesters. That was my fault. So, you know, I mean, I can kind of understand why that perception was there. I didn't fault that guy. I wasn't mad at that guy. And in fact, he's, he's still one of my friends, Facebook friends. Anyway, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, I understand what that's like. It hurt. But, gang, when you come down on the side of truth when you know that in your heart of hearts this is, this is the situation. The mud don't stick. And it's okay. You can let it slide off. Yeah, it hurts, it stings, it's not so pretty. But you know what? Pray for those who spitefully use you. Pray for them. Notice verse 29. He says, To him who strikes you on the one cheek... Offer the other also. Michael Hoodman says the following, quote, Turning the other cheek refers to personal retaliation, not criminal offenses or acts of military aggression. Clearly, Jesus did not mean to negate all God's laws and injunctions protecting us against violent crime or invading armies. Rather, Jesus is speaking here of the principle of non-retaliation to affronts against our own dignity, as well as lawsuits to gain one's personal assets. And by the way, if you look over in Matthew and in the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see there's all these run consecutive in regards to uh, lawsuits against one's personal assets, infringements of one's liberty, violation of property rights. He was calling for a full surrender of all personal rights. We live in a society today where it's all about my rights. What about my rights? What about my rights? You don't have rights, Christian. 
My rights were surrendered at the cross. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. And it wasn't cheap. God's grace may be a free offering to you, but it cost Him much. Turning the other cheek means not to return insult for insult in retaliation. Oh yeah? Well, your mama's so ugly. That's the idea, right? Retaliation. No, don't do that. Which is what most people expect and how worldly people act. Responding to hatred with love just might grab someone's attention and afford us a chance to share the gospel. When we respond in a manner that is unnatural, it displays the supernatural power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus was the perfect example because He was silent before His accusers and did not call down revenge from heaven on those who crucified Him. In fact, what did He say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If a blind man steps on your foot, do you knock him down? I hope not. He's blind. He can't help it. So when the natural man does something against you who doesn't know Jesus Christ, don't retaliate. He doesn't know. He's blind. David Gusick says it this way. He says, when Jesus speaks about turning the other cheek, He isn't talking about being passive in the face of a physical assault. That's not what he's necessarily talking about. He says it means he would not defend, he means we should not defend ourselves in the face of a grievous insult. Culturally, the slap on the cheek was more an attack on honor than a physical assault. MacArthur does a great job in explaining this section. Listen to this. When someone was unsynagogued, back in that day, if you were a follower of Christ and it became known that you were following Christ, you were unsynagogued. You were kicked out of the synagogue. So the unsynagogued, here's what would happen. Frequently, they were whipped before whoever wanted to watch. Clothes were taken off their backs and they received 39 lashes, leather thongs probably embedded with bits of stone which lacerated their backs 39 times. Remember the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians um, 11.24 says, they did it to me five times. Five times the Jews did it to me. Acts 5.40 talks about those in the early church who preached the gospel being flogged. That was the physical punishment connected to the shame of being unsynagogued for the sake of Jesus Christ. But there was something else that they did. The way you dishonored someone, one of the ways you dishonored someone was to slap them across the face. And while there was a real flogging, actual physical pain, there was also a symbolic humiliation in front of the synagogue congregation. One of the officials would slap the person across the face as a symbolic indignity and humiliation. That's what's in view here. When they bring you in front to humiliate you and they slap you across the face, offer the other cheek. Accept your humiliation. That's what he's saying. Accept your humiliation. So, what then does it mean to turn the other cheek? It simply means this. 
when you have been treated with humiliation, when you've been treated with shame, when you've been treated with sort of the anger and hostility, when you've been despised and scorned and rejected, just keep on loving and get ready to be hit again. Don't retaliate. The love that has been called for here doesn't retaliate. It doesn't defend itself against this kind of humiliation and rejection, hostility. It doesn't get angry. It doesn't hate when it's hit. When rights and property and possessions are wrongly taken, this love is quick to love again and therefore be wronged again because the person stays in the place to continue to show the love to the enemy because he cares about the enemy's soul. So we could say this love is vulnerable. By its, contract, by, by its constant availability and openness and honesty, it maintains a constant vulnerability. The other cheek then simply means you're going to have to hit me again if you don't like the way I'm loving you because I'm going to keep loving you this way. No matter how many times they hit you, Keep loving them because it's that love that's inexplicable. It's that love that speaks of the works of God in your heart. Here is this Christian relentlessly, continually reaching out to contemptuous enemies with love for the soul of that enemy. End quote. Verse 29, second part says, And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a pause here. Uh, tonight in your groups, you can probably go through these. Well, let me just brush through these. I, I'll finish this out because I want to conclude this section this week. Stay with me. If you've checked out, um, please check back in. Exodus 22. Turn over there real quick. Exodus 22. Exodus If you, and I'm not going to take time to read through this chapter, but if you'll read through chapter 22, you're going to see a lot of these practices that are, that are brought out. But let me just say this. Let me sum this up. Early Christians, when it references here not to withhold your tunic either, early Christians, a lot of times, what would happen during their persecution, their outer garment would be taken. And the outer garment... Um, and you'll see it defined there in that Exodus 22 passage. But the outer garment basically a lot of times served not only is to keep them warm, to keep them clothed, the outer garment. It was often used as a blanket at night. And so when this is pulled away from them, when this is taken away from them, and a lot of times it was taken away there in public again to, to shame them, Jesus says, from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. MacArthur says, don't retaliate, don't seek vengeance. They never really are the enemy. They're always the mission field. This goes for, hang on to your, hang on to your hat here, church. This goes for abortionists, homosexuals, lesbians, all the people that pervert 
and corrupt our culture. Don't forget, they may hate our faith and hate our gospel. They aren't any different than these people. They have to be loved. They have to be loved. And it's not a love that tolerates their iniquity. Let me make that clear. It's not a love that tolerates their iniquity. It's a love that continues to speak into their life the gospel no matter how evilly they treat us. That's the difference. That's a big difference. Uh, Verse 30, and I know I'm moving through this quick, but I want to get this through and I want you to hear these things. Verse 30, give to everyone who asks of you and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. We can only practice this kind of sacrificial love when we know that God will take care of us, right? I have to admit, this is a struggle. This one I struggle with. I see the guy standing out on the side of the road, holding the sign up, wanting some money. Come on, you, you thought it. You want to roll down your window and say, get a job! Okay, maybe not. I only did that once. And, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't. I did. Well, maybe I did. That would have been back in the old day. But anyway. Guys, we can't, it, it, we can't practice this kind of love. When somebody asks of you, takes away your goods, don't ask for them back. If we really live this, and this is important, important, hear this. If we really live this, wouldn't people walk all over us? I mean, that's what we ask, isn't it? We ask this. Well, look, if I give to everybody that asks me, I'm not going to have any money left in my wallet, Pastor. I'm not asking you to do that. Because I think there is a fine line here, and you have to find that fine line in your relationship with the Lord. I think if we're in right communion with God, we know when there's a line and when to stop and when to say yes and when to go forward. It's called a limit. The limit is easy to find. The limit of love. When fulfilling a person's request isn't loving towards them, then I shouldn't do it. Let me say that again. When fulfilling a person's request isn't loving them, then I shouldn't do it. Giving a person everything they ask for isn't necessarily love. Let me give you the example. Alcoholism. Drug addiction. Anybody ever watch the show Intervention? Raise your hand if you've seen Intervention. Good show. Great show. I like that show. In fact, I have to watch that as one of my homework assignments in my class. It's, it's a very interesting show. They basically document those who struggle with these addictions. Drug addiction, alcohol addiction. They just had one, an eating disorder. And they follow around these people and they actually video their life and them doing these things to themselves and it's, it's terrible and you see it and you, and you kind of get pulled into the world that they're in, in, in from, from a viewer's standpoint. And then the family and friends who love them have set up an intervention. The person thinks they're being filmed about their addiction. They don't know an intervention's coming. And so then they have the family and the counselor comes in and he, he talks to the family and says, here's what's going to have to happen, here's what's going to take place. And without fail... Too often times, there are those family members who say, but I can't cut off my baby. Where are they going to go? I don't want them on the street. That's called codependency. Codependency. 
You know what kills more people than alcohol or drugs combined? Codependency. That's when I don't love enough to say enough. And it never fails. In the show, the counselor will tell the parent, who pays for their cell phone? Uh, we do. Who pays for the car insurance? I do. Uh, who, who gives them a place to say? We do. That ends today. And if they don't get off of this, you're going to turn them in. Whoa! But I thought you loved them. Love has a limit. Read your scriptures. Love has a limit. And if you really love them, that's where you have to come to. That's where we have to be. Conclusion. Love your enemies. Love like Christ. I just want to read. The Bible says, give heed to the public reading of Scriptures. Let me read for you these last verses of chapter 6. 31 through 36. Just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Now, I don't know about you, but I am so thankful that God was merciful to me, an evil and unthankful person. When He came to me with His grace and His love, I was unlovable. And yet He offered me that grace. And now as a Christian, I'm beginning to understand, and I want you to understand this. Let the light come on. Galatians 2.20 Christian, I have been crucified with Christ. Have you been crucified? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Ephesians 5.2 Walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Ephesians 4.32 And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. You want to know who your enemy is? Your enemy is the boss 
who makes work miserable. The enemy is the former spouse, the former spouse who turned a child custody battle into the worst experience of your life. It's the teenager who tore your family apart. It's the teacher who falsely accused you of cheating and got you kicked out of school. It's the minister who turned your friends against you. It's the next-door neighbor who repeatedly threatens you and your family. It's the creditor who drove you into bankruptcy. It's the physician whose malpractice stole your health and left you in pain. It's the stockbroker who lost your life savings. It's the fiancé who was unfaithful and broke your heart. It's the lover who gave you that disease that can't be cured. It's the bully who beat up your child. The list goes on and on. We have enemies. But we're to love them. If you've not seen the musical, the movie, Les Miserables, I want to encourage you to take a look. There's a couple of scenes that you might want to not look, but this, if you're not familiar with the story, who here is familiar with the story of Les Miserables? Okay. It is a, it is a movie about grace, and there's a scene in it where Jean Valjean, the lead, he, he has been released from prison. He was in prison for stealing bread. And he served a long sentence. And he can't get work. Because everywhere he goes, he has to present his paper that he's a prisoner. And they con- he's a marked man. And he finally finds himself just so at wit's end, he falls asleep outside of a, in, a, in a graveyard. And, and a priest finds him, takes him in. It's a cold night. He feeds him. He shows him love. Gives him a nice bed to sleep in. And during the night he wakes and he remembers all the silver that he used to eat, the plates and the utensils. And so this man, instead of showing gratitude, he goes and he steals. Jean Valjean steals all of these things and he makes out the door with all of these possessions that he stole. The next morning there's a knock at the door and here are these uh, guys who had caught him. And they turn him in to the priest. We found the man who stole all of these things. And the priest turns and grabs the two candlesticks, and he says, basically, you left so soon that you forgot these. Instead of showing judgment, he showed grace and mercy. He showed mercy to the man, and Jean Valjean lays there that night, and he's haunted by what this man has done. Nobody's ever shown him this kind of love. Nobody's shown him this kind of kindness, and he knows it's a representation of Christ. And in that moment, he's so broken that he calls out to Christ to save him. He experiences the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, and he becomes a new man. He's been set free. The mercy leads him to respond to the grace of God. You know, the definition of grace is getting what you don't deserve. And mercy is not getting what you do. A kindergarten teacher had decided to let her class play a game The teacher told each child in the class to bring along a plastic bag containing a few potatoes. Each potato will be given a name of a person that the child hates. So the number of potatoes that a child will put in his or her plastic bag will depend on the number of people he or she hates. So when the day came, every child brought some potatoes with the name of the people he or she hated. Some had two potatoes. Some had three. Some had as many as five. They had to carry these heavy bags around if they had more 
And after one week, the children were relieved because the game had finally ended. They had noticed that day after day, the smell began to become very strong. It was unpleasant. The rotten potatoes stunk, and the weight of the bags grew heavier and heavier. But it finally ended, and they were relieved, and the teacher asked, how did you feel while carrying the potatoes with you for one week? The children let out their frustrations and started complaining of the trouble they had to go through carrying these heavy bags and the smelly potatoes wherever they went. Then the teacher told them the hidden meaning behind the game. The teacher said, this is exactly the situation when you carry your hatred for someone inside your heart. The stench of hatred will contaminate your heart and you will carry it with you wherever you go. If you cannot tolerate the smell of rotten potatoes for just one week, can you imagine what it's like to have the stench of hatred in your heart for your lifetime? Moral of the story, throw away any hatred for anyone from your heart so that you will not carry sins for a lifetime. Forgiving others is the best attitude to take. We need to love our enemies. True love is not loving a perfect person, but loving an imperfect person perfectly. Let's pray.